I want to introduce to you a friend of mine, uh, Ann Ferris. Ann, come on up. We can give Ann a hand. That would be wonderful. Uh, this is Ann's second time back at Mosaic. And so thanks for coming back uh, to be with us once more. Uh, Ann and I worked, uh, she still works at Ada Bible Church. I worked with Ann at Ada Bible Church. She's a very gifted communicator. How close are you to being done with your MDiv? Less than three weeks. Less than three weeks. Whoa. So can we give her a hand? She's less than three weeks to be done with her MDiv. That is a very long, very strenuous seminary degree. And uh, we're just thrilled to have Ann uh, with us uh, to preach this morning. So Ann, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. I uh, was really bummed last week because we saw the weather coming. And I was like, oh, man, I... Don't want to miss this opportunity because this is a really exciting sermon series that you all are going through, uh, looking at all the different stages and parts of the Old Testament and how it leads up to Jesus. And so I was really excited when Noah said that I could still come this week and do a catch-up because this week's session is, well, it's kind of important, right? They're all important. Every single one of them is. But... Um, I'm going to find my slides here real quick. What I think is important about this section is um, it's one of the easiest, I think, to tie to Jesus. Um, so I have the united monarchy today to talk about. So we got Saul, David, Solomon. It's the only time period that the entire kingdom was united. After Solomon, it all goes downhill. But interestingly, the whole thing, kind of like a roller coaster. Um, so a question for you to think about as we start is, how do you feel about roller coasters? Some of us are, oh, we got a thumbs down over here. Thumbs down. Kyle's a thumbs medium. Okay. So I used to love roller coasters. And actually on my honeymoon, we went to Universal and did all of the coasters that we could. Where now, at the age uh, that I currently am, I don't do well with my body on a roller coaster, right? Almost instantly dizzy if anything's going in a circle or anything like that. But it's such a good metaphor for the king's reigns because we see a lot of ups and downs and ups and downs and a few spirals as well. So um, I appreciated that Noah used the Bible Project images because that kind of gives us that picture as well. So we see the story of Saul, David, Solomon in the book of Samuel. And Samuel in our Bibles is broken up into two books because on the manuscripts in Hebrew, they were just way too long to be one book. So they are broken up in half. Same with Kings and Chronicles. They're actually one longer book. And what we see in these books is the stories of the kings, the stories of what was happening in Samuel and Kings, and then also in Chronicles. Chronicles is a retelling from a different author of similar events. And the time frame is a little bit up in the air, right? We don't know exactly how long each of these kings reigned. There is a lot of scholarship that shows that it's pretty diverse. In some places, it says 40 years for each of them, which leads us to think that it probably wasn't 40 years because 40 exact years is unlikely for a length of somebody to live and then die. So the scribes were not super concerned with how long they lived. So this generic number tells us what's more important is the lives that they lived, not how long they lived. 
What we ended on with judges is people doing what's right in their own eyes, right? There's not a king. There is a bunch of different factions. There's all the tribes. And everyone's trying to figure out what to do. And there's something that I love about that phrase that people did what was right in their own eyes. There's a level of they just did whatever they wanted, whatever they felt like. But there's also a level of they tried, right? They did. They tried to do what was right, but they didn't have a unified guidance, right? And so the people asked for a king. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because in Deuteronomy, there is the suggestion that there probably will be a king because there are requirements in Deuteronomy for what a king should be. And so there was the expectation that at some point, Israel would have a king. So uh, other lands around them had governments, they had organization, and the people are looking around and they're seeing these different organizations and governments and they're thinking, we would also like to be a little bit more organized. We would like to come together. We would like to be organized. So Samuel is tasked with this job of finding the first king. The first one that he comes up with that the people agree on is Saul. And Saul doesn't want the job from the beginning. Saul gets the job and Saul is installed. And uh, you see he has a meteoric rise and a very quick fall as well. Saul doesn't want the job and he's continually refusing to follow God. He was trying to do what Saul wanted to do, not necessarily what God wants him to do. And so he's always resisting this kingship that he was given, which is part of his roller coaster ride, right? There's a lot of crossover between Saul and David. We, we've probably heard some of the various stories where David is brought in to soothe via his harp music when Saul is distraught. We have the stories of David and Goliath, where Saul was not leading the army, and David comes in, he's like, hey, I'm a little guy, I can take him out, and does, right? And then that is part of the downfall of Saul, because all of a sudden, everyone loves David. David is winning all the battles, and Saul gets insanely je jealous and kind of loses his mind a little bit. So... <laughs> Um, one thing that I feel like if anyone is a fan of the Princess Bride, I see that in the story of David and Saul. There's chases, escapes, miracles, true love. All of it is present, present in the story of David and Saul. So then David is actually crowned king before Saul actually dies. So there's a little bit of a scandal and intrigue going on there. Um, but, which is why you see his arc coming up over Saul's, David is not of Saul's family. So there's a lot that we see in the scriptures of trying to explain how this guy got to be king when he was not part of the family line of Saul. How did, how did this guy come to be king? Especially because David ends up being the ideal king. All throughout the exiles, all throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, we see David always held up as this ideal king. This was the best time. And so there's a lot of uh, space and writing put into why David should have been acceptable. And so he's the youngest. 
He's overlooked in the story. He gets picked as the youngest of his family. He's just out watching the sheep. He has no training in politics or in leadership of any kind. And yet we see that he is the one selected and chosen. It's a lot of the writing is a little bit even mythical and legendary. You can see that all these stories are passed down on David. He's just the king of the best kings. David completes the conquest that the Israelites began when they entered Israel. He takes over Jerusalem and he installs Jerusalem as the capital city. So they have a central capital city for their country. And then he brings the ark in. So the ark was in the um, ownership under because it had been taken by the Philistines and then brought back. So David brings the ark into Jerusalem as well. And so he installs Jerusalem not just as the political capital of Israel, but also as the religious capital. Because now we have the ark present and he has his palace there. And this is the place that is going to centralize the country. So he brings from 12 separate tribes to one country, one central capital. Meteoric rise. And then when he dies, not his firstborn son, but his next son, Solomon, is lifted up as king. And he also has a meteoric rise. Uh, Solomon is not as much in the book of Samuel as it is in Kings. So we're going to continue the story into the book of Kings. And Solomon is the wise king, right? We all know the story of King Solomon who uh, answered all of the questions, always had the wisdom, always had the insight. And his rise was equally meteoric, but also he had a few issues as well. So we don't, even as we have David elevated as the ideal king, he had plenty of issues and messed up plenty of the time. Solomon flourishes the country. Great wealth, great power, uh, gems and cedar wood, and all these things are brought into the country as the city of Jerusalem flourishes, the country of Israel flourishes. Everything is phenomenal until it all becomes about Solomon. And one of the things that the book of Kings says leads to his downfall is all of his wives. So we also know the thing about Solomon is he's got a bajillion wives and a bajillion concubines. David had a whole bunch also. But Solomon is known for this astronomical amount of ladies that he has around, that he marries in, that he brings in as part of his life. And Kings tells us that this is his downfall because all of these wives, he's creating political alliances with, uh, with other countries and making peace, and they bring in all of their gods. So here is Solomon at the height of Israel's wealth, bringing in all these gods. And Kings tells us that this is his downfall because he allows all these gods all over instead of worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. And so everything then goes down for him. And Solomon is the last of the kingdom being united. The kingdom then ruptures into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The period of these united kings is what people would have looked back on as the ideal. 
the uniting, the blessing from God. Uh, when they were in exile, they wanted to go back to Israel, not for the divided kingdom, not for just Judah or just Israel. They wanted to go back to when Israel was a united place under these kings that brought peace and brought blessing. This is what was promised. This is what they were looking for. So this is the basic storyline that we have in Samuel and in Kings and in Chronicles. And this is where I'm going to give you a little bit of discussion question time. Because there's so many different ways we can go, but we're going to just discuss a couple of things. So the first question is just, what would you say are characteristics of a good king or a bad king? What makes a good king? What makes a bad king or ruler or leader? And then the second question is, share your favorite example of a David versus Goliath story. We have them in um, art, in movies, in books, all over the place. So take a few minutes and we'll talk about what makes a good or a bad king and what your favorite David the Goliath story is. So what I love about the second question about a David versus Goliath story is because like some of the ones that were mentioned crack me up that aren't necessarily the first thing we would think of, but I bet uh, all of our groups came up with so many options. It is so ubiquitous in culture. And I, I also think that it's a little bit of a metaphor for the nation of Israel itself. Israel itself is that underdog against this, all the other huge nations. And so I think it's always a great picture of so many different experiences um, that God is involved with and God cares about the underdog. So there is about a million different ways that you can go with this story of the United Kingdom. But I wanted to look at a couple, it just like one big picture, and I was really thankful for Ryan who uh, hit right on what the topic is today, and it's about power. What we see when someone does have power, what power looks like when it's used, and where I want to go first actually is to the very beginning of Samuel because um, it starts with Hannah. And Hannah was Samuel's mother, and she was praying for a child and finally gets this baby and then dedicates him to the temple to be a prophet, to be a priest, to work there. And a couple of the things that she says, I think, are so poignant in his dedication to the, at the temple is that the Lord lifts the weak from the dust. The Lord raises the poor from the ash heap to seat them with princes. The Lord will strengthen his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. God cares about those who do not have power and raises them up. And it's interesting that she prays this in her prayer because there was not yet a king, and yet she's referring to the Lord strengthening a king. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. In Deuteronomy, there were requirements for a king. There was three listed that they would not amass wealth, that they would be humble, and that they would study the law. And David did exemplify all three of those things, that he wasn't about amassing wealth, 
unlike Solomon, ends up being, and that he would be humble. And we see that for David in the Psalms, and that also that he studied the law. That was really important, that the the Torah, the first five books that we have in the Hebrew Scriptures, would be the guidelines, would be the lifeblood for a king. What we see here, too, in Hannah's song is that God lifts and exalts the poor while God opposes the proud. We see that in our New Testament scriptures, too, that God cares about how power is wielded. There's a pivotal story of David right in the middle of all of the stories of the United Kingdom. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has just conquered Jerusalem. He's just brought in the ark. He's made his government capital. And he's sitting in his beautiful house made of cedar wood. If you've ever smelled fresh cut cedar, it has an amazing scent, right? Very aromatic. Um, It's known to keep bugs away because of the scent. So it would have been a long lasting house because of this wood that would have been shipped in from way up north. So he's got his fancy home that he's living in on the hill of Jerusalem, safe, secure, and intended to be long-lasting. He's looking around, and he realizes he just brought in this ark of God to bring the religion of God into Jerusalem, and he's got it in a tent. And he's looking at his beautiful house, and he realizes, I've got God in a tent while I live in this beautiful, beautiful home. And so he says to Nathan, who is the current prophet, he says to Nathan, he says, I want to build a house for God. Here I am living in this fancy house. I need to build a house for for God. And Nathan says, great, do that. And then that night, Nathan goes home and he has a vision from God. And God says, actually, hold on a second. God says, I don't want David to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for David. God will do this. And so God speaks to Nathan and he says all these things that Nathan then tells to David. And this is kind of a conglomeration of the verses from chapter seven. God says, I brought you, David, from the pasture. I have been with you wherever you went. I will establish a place for my people Israel. I will plant them. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then David, your house and your kingdom will stand before me forever. Your dynasty will be forever. This is God's response to David saying, I want to build a house for God. And God says, nope, I'm going to build a house for you, David. All these uh, action words that God says, I brought you, I've been with you, I will establish, I will plant, I'll give rest. God's doing all this action for David. And it's bigger than just David. This is about the house of Israel. This is about the line of kings, the line of who will lead, of who will be um, over to help and direct the people. And then David speaks a blessing back. What's even more interesting is in the retelling of this in Chronicles, it's 1 Chronicles 17, very similar text. And then the end says, 
My house and my kingdom will stand forever. My dynasty will be forever. So God is saying, your house, David, it's my house that I'm building. God is saying, I am building, I am doing a work in Israel. Now, it seems like David has all this power, right? He has uh, conquered Jerusalem. He is leading the whole country for the first time ever. But it's God who's at work behind the scenes. It's God who's really at work the whole time. And speaking of David and God, we have something that you may have heard before about um, David. In 1 Samuel 13, when Samuel is looking to replace Saul, he says, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And this is the story we hear of David. This is repeated in the New Testament as well. And it's always been something that I've struggled with a little bit, this phrase that gets repeated over and over. Because David was murdery. <laughs> he cheated. He took what he wanted without it being his. We've got the story of Bathsheba and Uriah. He murders the guy to get his wife. He just steals a wife. He's got plenty of wives and concubines as well. Is David a representative of God's heart? I mean, that doesn't sound right when I look at who God is and who David is. And so as I'm studying this passage, these passages and this text, what I find is that this is actually a common phrase in ancient Near East literature. So it's used three other times in ancient Near Eastern texts. So there's a god Enlil for another uh, group of people who speaks this about his king, that Enlil chose a man after his heart. And it's also spoken about a king who was against Nebuchadnezzar at another time frame, where it was a king after that God's heart who was going to go against Nebuchadnezzar. So this phrase in the ancient Near East is used not to represent who the God was, but that the God chose the king. So the God made the choice for Enlil chose this king, for example. Enlil is the one who chose. So it's saying that Enlil decided who got to be king. And that's how it's used, I think, of David as well. Not that David represents God's heart, but that David represents God working in the middle of all of the historical, religious, governmental things. God chose David. That's what this phrase is representing. And I think that's part of representing the legitimacy of David as king, right? Because he, again, he wasn't Saul's heir. He was legitimately the king because God specifically chose David. In the midst of the scandals, in the midst of all the failings of David, he doesn't represent God. He represents that God is at work in our world. And I love this picture of God being involved in the world. So the thing that I also love about the story of the United Kingdom is that it is the easiest tie to Jesus. We haven't mentioned Jesus yet, right? But the whole of the threads and the stories are always pointing forward. And we see quite a lot that they're pointing forward to a Messiah, 
And they're pointing to a Messiah who is called Son of David. In the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, when the people are laying their cloaks and they're throwing down palm branches, and Jesus is sitting on a colt walking into Jerusalem, the people are crying out, Jesus, Son of David, Hosanna. When Jesus is walking and there are beggars, they cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This phrase, son of David, is a messianic phrase. They're saying, you are king. Clearly, you're in the line of David. They would not necessarily have known Jesus' lineage, that he was connected by birth all the way back. But they had been looking for this Messiah to come to rescue them. And so all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they refer to the house of David because God had promised that God would preserve David's house forever. And then the first time that name is used, son of David, to not refer to one of David's actual sons like Solomon or somebody, is Jesus. It's the first time that's ever used. And that's referring to this promised king who will rescue, who will come and reunite the kingdom. Because it had never been a united kingdom again. It had never had the blessing, the peace, the ease of when it was Saul, David, Solomon. And that's what they were wanting from Jesus, to to turn back and to say, where is that blessing that God has promised? This Messiah is going to get rid of the Romans. This Messiah is going to reunite the kingdom, bring all our tribes back together. And Jesus changes it, as he always does. Jesus completely changed the image of the ideal king. Because David had been the king that they had always looked at as the best king ever. Because he had done this unifying. He had brought the blessing of God on Israel. And Jesus is like, actually, when you think of a king, I don't want you to think of David. I want you to think of me. When you think of a king, I don't want you to think of someone wielding power and coming in with an army and taking over and using their money to increase their wealth and to increase their borders. I want you to think of a king who turns the other cheek. I want you to think of a king who washes feet. I want you to think of a king who loves their enemy and blesses those who hurt them. Jesus turns the idea of power completely on its head, as Jesus always does. Jesus changes the whole idea. All throughout his teachings, Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God over and over. And I wonder if his hearers heard the picture of David's kingdom. When Jesus said kingdom of God, I wonder if they went, yeah, yeah, when David was king and everything was unified and the Lord blessed That's the kingdom of God. I wonder if that's what they thought. But I think that's not what Jesus meant. When Jesus said kingdom of God, he meant loving your enemy, washing feet, and power in weakness, not strength. We see in Philippians 2, Paul's writing about Jesus and says, Jesus, who is in the very nature of God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, also translated to be grasped. He didn't grab at it, but he made himself nothing, weak, and took the very nature of a servant. Uh, weakness is valuable. Service is power. God's power made perfect in weakness, not in shows of strength, not in pride, not in amassing wealth. At the beginning of our story, we saw Hannah singing to God about lifting the weak and the poor. We saw David, who was pivotal in history, He wasn't even the ideal king that the legends spoke about him as. And God still worked in and through David in spite of his failings, in spite of Saul's failings, in spite of Solomon's failings. God still worked through all that. And we see Jesus come in saying, that's not the kingdom of God that I'm talking about. The kingdom we're talking about is whatever rulers are over you. You are a servant. Whoever has the power, that's not the point. It's about loving those around you, whether they be your friend, your family, your enemy. Jesus arrives to show us true power in weakness, true power in service, and true power in humility. Because Jesus always changes everything. And so what does it look like for us to live like that? What does it look like for us to use our power with humility? Because we each have different levels of power in some area of our life. Someone that we may have authority over. How do we use our power with service, with love? And how can we participate in Jesus' version of the kingdom of God? Jesus' version of turning a cheek and reaching out and embracing humility and weakness. I love this whole story of these kings and seeing God at work, seeing God involved, and using these messed up rulers to still care for Israel, to still give us a picture of the kingdom that God wanted. So we have this choice as we look at our own lives to live in humility, to live in weakness with our power and with the love that Jesus gave us. Especially as we are in the season of Advent and we're waiting waiting for Jesus, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah who brings blessing, who brings joy and love. How will you wait? How will you use your power 